You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 30th of August 2019 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View coming up today. So when people start to identify the national interest with a specific belief system, whether that's remain or believe or whatever, because I think uh, both sides are guilty on this, then we're in very dangerous waters. And that's the first step towards making a more hysterical political atmosphere. Words can help to divide people. And if, as Adam says, you label your opponents as traitors, if you label your opponents as uh, putschists or as having launched a coup d'etat, you deepen the gulf between you and them. Taking a longer look at whether the heated discourse around Brexit is itself a factor in Brexit, along with the day's big stories on our news panel, are Robin Lustig, the author and journalist, and Adam Labour, also an author and journalist. We'll also be talking about the 30 years that have elapsed since Germany's reunification and why we are confronted with reminders that this remains a work in progress. And we'll look at how to make peace deals stick. Plus, we hear why music meant more in the 1990s because we had to buy it. I'm Andrew Muller. Monocle's House View starts now. Welcome to the show. I'm joined today by Adam Labor and Robin Lustig. And we will start in Colombia, where a couple of former commanders of the theoretically demobbed guerrilla group FARC appear to have decided that, on reflection, they regard Colombia's civil war as unfinished business. The half-century-long conflict was supposed to have been brought to a close by the 2016 peace deal, which won Colombia's president of the time, Juan Manuel Santos, a Nobel Peace Prize. The FARC commanders threatening a comeback, Ivan Marquez and Jesus Santrich claim that Santos's successor, Ivan Duque, has been derelict with his end of the bargain. Uh, first of all, are these people actually serious? At the end of every conflict, there's always the issue of the holdouts and the people that agree with the peace process. So every revolutionary movement is divided into pragmatists and revolutionaries, uh, or we could say pragmatists and ideologues. So the pragmatists in FARC are obviously the ones that have agreed to the peace deal, see uh, see the movement's future as integration into the existing political we, system. We, we should note that FARC's actual leadership insists that the peace deal holds, that their war is over, and so forth. Exactly, yeah. So the question is, as you say, how much support do these two have? And at the moment, it's not clear. It's still an evolving situation. Uh, Robin, when you do have uh, the holdouts of this sort, and, and, and they can indeed go to extremes, one does at this moment, as one so often does, think of Lieutenant Hiro Onoda of the Imperial Japanese Army, uh, who finally surrendered World War II in 1974, uh, if memory serves, having spent three decades taking pot shots at the blameless inhabitants of some island in the Philippines. Um, can you and should you do anything to placate these people? It's very hard to know. Um, I liked your phrase, unfinished business, because it seems to me that any peace deal of the kind which the Colombians negotiated always leaves unfinished business, and it always leaves some dissatisfied people on both sides. Um, it, 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 it's really difficult to know. The key issue, I think, is how much popular support this attitude has. Um, the Colombian peace deal was uh, far from perfect, it didn't give either side what they really wanted. Um, what it brought 
to my mind, was the Northern Ireland peace settlement, mm. um, which again, like all peace settlements, was a compromise, which was far from perfect, but it did lower the level of violence very, very considerably, and it had enormous popular support. Um, I did some reporting from Colombia many, many years ago, and I remember meeting a former fighter in FARC, a woman as it happened, and the reason she left the movement um, long before this peace deal was signed was that she discovered that far from being a fighter for social justice, which is what she'd hoped she would be by joining the movement, she'd become an armed guard of an illegal coca plantation, because one of the things which all these rebel movements seem to have in common is that they have links to organized crime. Mm. And it is quite possible that in Colombia what we are seeing is organized crime flexing its muscles for, to put it bluntly, pecuniary interest. They want to make more money and uh, there are always people who make money out of conflict. This nexus between crime and revolution goes back a long way. Look, Stalin used to organise bank robberies for the Bolshevik Party to to fund their revolutionary movement. And, and, uh, Nor- and Northern and Ireland, if, yeah, which if, Robin acknowledged there was on both sides a criminal racket to a very large extent. Yes, there was a uh, there was a criminal organised criminal connections on both sides, uh, on the loyalist and on the republican side. But the parallel with Ireland is a very good one here because. What we're seeing in Ireland, what we've seen recently, is still sputterings of violence, the tragic killing of the young journalist of, uh, a few months ago by what was supposedly an extreme splinter group from the provisional IRA that doesn't accept the peace process. So there will always be these radicals, although thankfully in Ireland it seems that there was you know, a very strong popular revulsion against that and the overwhelming feeling in Ireland seems to be that the Good Friday Agreement must hold. So it'll be an interesting uh, scenario to watch how this develops in Colombia, whether the, the peace treaty is is still gains mainstream support or if people tend more towards the idea of breaking it. Uh, Robin, that right there is an interesting point. The question of if you're going to attempt to restart or even perpetuate any kind of conflict, how much popular support you need. Because my sense of Northern Ireland, from which I did some limited amount of reporting, and I I have interviewed a few of the protagonists in in what became known as the Troubles, and I think this is a view which has become clearer the further we've got from Good Friday, that there was a recognition by paramilitary organisations, both Republican and Loyalist, that increasing numbers of the population were just sick of it. Uh, and just didn't care anymore as long as it all stopped. Once people have got to that point, how easy or hard is it to interest a critical mass in in going back to it? It, It's hard, but I think one of the key factors that that, that needs to be borne in mind is that these rebellions, if you want to call them that, are born out of social inequity. They are when they begin at least, struggle for, struggles for social justice. And one of the things that governments tend not to be very good at, even when they have struggled for years to bring to an end a long-running conflict, is then dealing with the underlying causes. And if those underlying causes, as I fear is the case in Colombia, have not been adequately dealt with, then there will be a residual popular feeling that maybe those rebels had a point and maybe there is a need or there will be a need to return to the armed struggle. What if, though, Robin, and this is my own possibly bleak assessment of these things, one of the underlying causes of conflict is that a certain quantity of people just enjoy it? There will always be people, particularly unemployed young men, who are excited by the prospect of picking up a weapon and using it. It gives them a purpose, it gives them a sense of excitement. Uh, and Syria. Uh, 
Yes, absolutely. And again, I mean, that is a huge issue for governments to confront when you do end a conflict, is what do you find to do for the people who were the fighters. Um, again, going back to my time reporting from Colombia, I remember going to a school where former fighters from both sides were literally sitting side by side at desks, learning to read and write, learning basic skills, and learning also to respect each other. Um, that, of course, is part of what needs to be done, but it's part of a much bigger picture, which is to deal with the underlying problems. Uh, Adam, when is the most dangerous time for what is supposedly a, a settled peace? Is it in the immediate aftermath, or is it that period which I guess we're reaching... Well, if, if, it, if this is where we have got to in Colombia, it's happened fast, but where we may have got to with Northern Ireland, perhaps where we will get to with Bosnia-Herzegovina, where enough time has passed that enough people remember how bad the war was... I think there's two there's two times that are particularly dangerous. Paradoxically, one of the most dangerous times is before the peace agreement is settled mm. because each side fights really hard to maximise their position. And so that's what we used to see in Bosnia when I was there covering it, is that whenever there was a peace movement or a peace envoy coming and it looked like we might be inching towards a settlement, everyone would try and capture more villages and capture more territories. So it would accelerate the conflict. So that's the first most dangerous time. And then I think the second most is, as you say, a good while afterwards. Uh, also, I mean, it can be fragile immediately afterwards, but then usually there's enough momentum to make things hold. But then maybe 10 or 20 years afterwards, as you say again, in Bosnia now, people accept the settlement, but you see all the time the entities that came out of that settlement, the, the Bosnian Serb Republic and the uh, Muslim Croat Federation on the other side, they're straining. They're straining to take greater control. There's, there's an intra-entity power struggle within Bosnia-Herzegovina because the memory of the war has faded and a new generation has come up. You know, the politicians there now may be in their 30s. That meant they were kids when there was the war. They didn't, they, they don't have, they had first-hand experience of it, but it seems very distant from another life. Robin Lustig and Adam Labor will be back in just a moment with you both. But first, here is Monocle's Daniel Bache with some of the other stories we're following today. Thank you, Andrew. The prominent Hong Kong activists Joshua Wong and Agnes Chow have been arrested as authorities continue their crackdown on anti-government demonstrations that have rocked the Asian financial hub in recent months. Mr. Wong's colleagues claim he was pushed into a private car as he walked to a railway station. He's been charged with organizing an illegal protest. It's thought that around 900 pro-democracy campaigners have been arrested since protests began back in June. Turkey has said the Iranian tanker at the center of a row between Washington and Tehran was on course for Lebanon after changing course today several times. Turkey has said the Iranian tanker at the center of a row between Washington and Tehran was on course for Lebanon after changing course several times on Friday. Beirut has said it was not informed of this route change. Tracking data shows the Adrian Daria, formerly called Grace One, was heading for a Turkish port which sits 200 kilometers north of a Syrian refinery suspected as the tanker's original destination. The tanker was previously impounded in Gibraltar, carrying two million barrels of oil supposedly headed to Syria against Western sanctions. Dissident commanders from the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia have said they will embark on a new offensive. The statement threatens a peace accord that was signed by FARC and the Colombian government three years ago. The government has vowed to hunt down and capture the rebel leaders. 
Japan's Prime Minister Shinzo Abe says he plans to do everything he can to ease tension in the Middle East. Mr. Abe says he wants to hold talks with the Iranian President Hassan Rouhani on the sidelines of the UN General Assembly session that begins next month. And an Australian government report has downgraded the Great Barrier Reef status to the lowest level. The report is published every five years and says coral reefs have declined to a very poor condition, with widespread habitat loss affecting fish, turtles and seabirds. The report points at climate change, overfishing and land clearing for the degrading condition. The new status jeopardizes the reef's World Heritage status. Now back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Daniel. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller, still here with Adam Labor and Robin Lustig. 30 years ago this week, the Iron Curtain was beginning to disintegrate. Border restrictions between Hungary and Austria had been removed, the first major broach in the fortifications which had seen half of Europe held hostage by the Soviet Union for decades. Hungary was days away from announcing that East Germans who had taken refuge in Hungary were free to head west. Within months, the Berlin Wall itself would fall to the chisel and sledgehammers of gleeful Germans, beginning the process of reunifying the country. 30 years later, however, we are confronted with reminders that a united Germany remains a work in progress. Um, Robin, was it always going to take decades rather than years to put Germany back together again? Yes, and, and of course it had to take place on lots of different levels. And I think, looking back now, um, the political task was actually easier than the social and cultural one. I I was made aware, even at the time, talking to people in East Germany at the time of unification, to them, a lot of them, it didn't feel like reunification. It felt like a takeover of their country. Annexation rather than reunification. And they weren't celebrating. I mean, that was the odd thing. I mean, there were, of course, people celebrating, the activists, although even there, I remember talking to some activists who said, you know, this isn't actually what we were fighting for. We wanted a better East Germany. We didn't want East Germany to disappear. And they did feel, I think the West Germans were somewhat insensitive in the way that they assumed that the East Germans would fall at their feet and say, oh, how wonderful, we can now all be like you. Because there were things about East Germany, awful place though it was in many ways, that East Germans did value, an education system, a housing system, a health system, and so on. So um, reunification is how we on the outside thought of it and still think of it, there were a lot of East Germans uh, who felt of it, as you say, as annexation or as a takeover. Uh, Adam, is it surprising, given that East Germany, as as Robin has just noted, was a, a deficient state in many respects? It was a, a ghastly, oppressive police state and dictatorship. There's no getting around that. Is it surprising to you that a, a national identity has nevertheless persisted. Polling consistently shows that if you ask West Germans or people from today's West, what was West Germany, where they're from, they will say, I'm German. But a, you still get quite surprising numbers of people from the east of the country who will answer, I'm an East German. Yeah, I think it's not surprising because that country existed from uh, the aftermath of the Second World War up until 1990-91 and if you grow up in that country you absorb some of the values of that country and it's true that it was hideous there was the Stasi controlled everything and I was recently I was in Berlin a few days ago and we went to the Stasi museum to visit it and it was an absolutely chilling place the sheer thoroughness of the methodology was was really chilling and even you can see the architecture around that place uh, in a rather dreary part of East Berlin is very different to West Berlin but it was their country 
country. They grew up in it and they absorbed some of the values. And as Robin says rightly, the housing, the education, the um, way that basic needs were met, even though it was very dreary and oppressive. I mean, when you crossed from west to east Berlin, it was extraordinary. Even the air smelled different when you come out of the other side of Friedrichstrasse. But it was their country. And I used to go to Berlin quite a lot before the wall came down, and I had friend, a friend in West Berlin that would intro, took me to meet his friends in East Berlin. And what was really interesting was that after the wall came down, the friendship collapsed between them because they realised that one, the East Berliners were kind of like a trendy icon for the West Berliner. I've got friends in East Berlin, <laughs> and vice versa for the for the West Berliner, the East Berliners uh, were, you know, they 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 represented something for each other, and then they discovered that actually they didn't really like. Each each other that much it was just the idea of it and the east berliners actually once the excitement wore off as robin says were they were they were angry that their country had disappeared i think nobody wants to be taken over i'm not sure what the answer was it could have if there could have been some kind of autonomous region or something or or different system of local government but I mean, it all boils down to the money. I mean, once you know, once once the currency's gone, the country's gone. One of the great myths at the time of reunification was that you know we are one people with a common history. Yeah. Well, they didn't have a common history no, for, for several decades, yeah. and, and 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 the difference between those histories was so profound yeah. that it is going to take quite a long time, I think, for them to be overcome. But of course, they don't, Robin really now have a common present and I guess is what we're talking about or have been talking about do you think the reason why support for alternative for Deutschland a rather unsavoury collection of nativist cranks is much stronger in East Germany as is anti-immigrant sentiment? Partly that, I think, and partly also that, of course, the economic picture in the eastern part of the country is rather different from in the western part. Also, there is less of a kind of democratic uh, tradition for people to fall back on. Going back to the Northern Ireland, I mean, I think one of the other things that, that the European Union helped to do was to make borders less important than perhaps they used to be. And uh, it... I think Germany is helped by the fact that the European Union does that. Robin Lustig and Adam Labor, thank you both for joining us. In a moment, we look back on the pop tribalism of the 1990s and why we're missing it today. Music was tribal. Bands and their fans were gangs. People that liked Blur were dicks. People that liked Suede, ponces. And people that liked Pulp were artists or something equally unforgivably fay. American music simply didn't exist anymore for a 15-year-old in Britain. You're listening to Monocle's House View. Do stay tuned. With summer in sight, Monocle spins the globe to provide a fresh take on the world of travel. Our annual Escapist magazine is your essential summer companion. Inside the new, glossier format, you'll find interviews with industry leaders, including the CEO of Edelweiss Airlines and the Mayor of Florence. You'll see our pick of top airport buys and hear from the people behind the businesses that make your holiday, whether that's an Aperol spritz or a comfy lounger. Then it's time for the Travel Top 50, our annual survey of the best in everything from aviation to hospitality. And if you're curious about who won the plaudits for their hotel shake-up or pre-journey pit stop, then don't miss out. Finally, we hop on a plane for our favourite new destinations. Join us as we dig our toes into the sand at an up-and-coming beach spot in the Philippines, hit the road in Morocco and grab lunch in an Australian surfing paradise. There's still just about time to meet the creative shaking up Tucson, Arizona before we finish off with a nightcap or three in a rather upscale part of Athens. Now that's what we call an escape. 
The Escapist is out now. Get your copy today or subscribe at monocle.com. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller. It's now time for the latest opinion from Monocle's editorial floor. Today, Rob Bound looks back at where he was at in 1994. Twenty-five years ago this week, Oasis released Definitely Maybe, an album that's been described as seminal and visceral more times than bad boy band-leading brothers Noel and Liam Gallagher have used the F-word in interviews or smoked, back then anyway, packs of Benson and Hedges. Today is going to be the day that they're going to throw it back to you. By now you should have somehow realised... The Oasis debut became the UK's fastest-selling album until 2006, sparked into life by three great singles, genuine rock and roll attitude and a campaign of belligerent band-baiting in interviews. What do you think of Blur these days? What? Not a lot. Yeah, I'm not in competition anymore with a Blur and that. British Blur, you know what I mean? It took them five years to get number one, right? It took us fucking 12 months, yeah? I bought Definitely Maybe sometime that month, and as a nice boy from Sussex at school in leafy Surrey, mad, bad, dangerous-to-know Mancunian oasis were a thrill like nothing else, equally intimidating and enthralling. Music was tribal. Bands and their fans were gangs. People that liked Blur were dicks. People that liked Suede, ponces. And people that liked Pulp were artists, or something equally unforgivably fay. American music simply didn't exist anymore for a 15-year-old in Britain. The 41-year-old writing this is not as ashamed of that dumb partisanship as you might think. Music meant more because we had to buy it. Colours were nailed to masts. Sleeve notes poured over, lyrics, inflections, hairstyles and walks practised in mirrors. We used to swagger around the 16th century quad at school, flicking V signs at each other for God's sake. Actually, that is embarrassing. But the point stands, and I miss this. We all like a bit of Taylor Swift and Stormzy in the weekend, but what do we love and how do we show it? Tribalism's awful, right? Right. But I miss it. For Monocle, I'm Robert Bound. That was Rob Bound, and that is all for today's show. Monocle's House View was produced by Daniel Bache and researched by Yolin Goffan and Naomi Potter. Our studio managers were May Lee Evans and Steph Chongu. Coming up at 2000, a brand new edition of The Menu with Marcus Hippie. Monocle's House View returns on Monday, 1800 London time, 1300 in Toronto. I'm Andrew Muller. Have a great weekend. <laughs>